soy del Salvador La Libertad. Cuando tenía nueve años, I was born in 1976 in La Libertad, El Salvador. I started working when I was nine years old. My parents didn't have any money. It was 18 brothers and sisters. They couldn't give us everything we needed. That is why I started working in agriculture, cultivating the land so that I could at least afford to buy myself some shoes. I always dreamed of going to school and I did go, but only for three years. My parents couldn't afford to pay tuition. I wanted to study and to become a professional, but that was not possible. Those dreams were crushed. When I was 13, I moved to the capital and got a job taking care of a newborn baby. I thought it was great because I was making money. I worked there for three years and then I returned back home because I missed everything I had left behind. While I was back home, I started giving catechism classes. I did that for about three years until I married and had three kids. I eventually separated from my husband because he was abusive to me and my children. And I became a single mother. With pain in my soul, I left my children with my parents and moved to go work at a maquila. I was happy to be able to work, but that's when my youngest son got sick. He was diagnosed with leukemia. It is a cruel disease. Welcome to the Roots of Hope podcast. That was Rosa. In our previous episode, we learned that she left El Salvador after being threatened and extorted by gangs. She fled, leaving behind three children. I left my children and my 10-year-old son who was sick with leukemia. We were making the journey with a supposed coyote who was charging real cheap. But that man tried to abuse me at the border with Guatemala and Mexico. We were in a hotel and I had my cousin traveling with me and it was him who protected me. When the coyote realized that my cousin wouldn't leave me alone, he got furious, abandoned us, took our money, and my cousin and I decided to keep going by ourselves. We managed to get closer to the US and thought that we had crossed through Eagle Pass. We walked slowly and stopped to take a break, take shelter under a tree. We saw some signs that said Texas. My cousin was leading the way, but he didn't know how far we needed to continue. We were hungry. We had not eaten in five days. We kept walking and arrived to a train station. This was supposed to be where people hopped on the train and rode it. My cousin told me to get on the train, but I told him I was tired of riding it. All of Mexico I had traveled on the train, and on two previous occasions, I was almost hit by it. He insisted that if we grabbed onto the train, we could enter Texas that same day. I kept saying that it didn't matter if we got to Texas even the next day, but he said, look, the train is coming now. That's when the train horn went off. cousin told me to give him what I was carrying so that I could get on alone. 
I listened to him, but I didn't see where I had put my foot. There was loose pieces of railing where I was standing. When the train passed, I reached my arm towards it and my foot slipped on the loose ground and I fell into the train. That's when I saw my foot was broken. So Rosa was taken to the hospital. Since she didn't have health insurance, she had to agree to do what the doctors were asking her to do. They cut and cut her leg right above the knee. Once the doctors was finished, she was released to an immigrant group home where she received assistance in finding a prosthetic and in finding medical help. At the same time, she was expected to find a lawyer in order to apply for asylum. When I went in front of the judge, she asked what happened to me, and I told her about my accident. She asked where I was from and if I was scared to go back. I said I was from El Salvador and replied that I was fearful. She then handed me an asylum application and said to find a lawyer to help me or at least find someone to help me fill out the forms. I looked and looked for lawyers, but I couldn't find one. Luckily, I always meet nice folks here in the U.S., and a friend told me to reach out to the Consulate of El Salvador in Houston. They told me to go to the St. Mary's School of Law, that they have a program there that might be able to help me. The director told me she couldn't guarantee me any help, but that she would let me know if a student was interested in my case. I had been to court on October 7th. So as November and December passed, my next court date was scheduled for January 29th. On the 25th, I was so worried that I would have to represent myself because I had not found a lawyer. But suddenly I got a call from Eric, a lawyer from St. Mary's Law Clinic. On the phone, Eric asked me if I will be home the next day, that he may be able to help. We meet on the 26th, he interviews me and tells me he isn't sure he can take on the case. And I think to myself, oh God, I have three days until my court date and no one has guaranteed me anything. But I stayed calm, trusting that something would happen. Well, then on the night of the 28th, Eric calls and tells me that the St. Mary's Law Clinic is taking my case that three student lawyers would be assigned to my case. He interviews me over the phone, fills out the asylum application, and the next day I show up to my hearing and there were four students, Eric, and the head of the St. Mary's Immigration Law Program. I thought I was more than protected because it felt like I had six lawyers representing me. So I went to that hearing and then another and another. I needed to build my case. And now, with the student lawyers, I felt like I was getting the help I needed.
My name is Carlos Hernandez. Uh, I'm in my third year of law school at St. Mary's uh, School of Law, St. Mary's University. So I spoke to Carlos, a third year law student at St. Mary's School of Law. He didn't personally work on Rosa's case, but he was previously a student in the program. So like I said, I, I um, was in law school and in the back of my mind, I was aware of the, of the, of the clinic. It's the immigration clinic uh, at St. Mary's for uh, legal and social justice, I believe. And so I had always known of it. Uh, I had been familiar with their work. Um, I just really liked the idea of that, of providing that kind of service um, to the community, provide, serving that, that demographic, like I said before. I was fortunate enough to, to get in there. So they provide free service, pro bono service in, in the area of immigration and human rights. And right now, um, the majority of the cases are asylum cases. You express the interest, they have a special, like I said, you know, you can't just register, you have to go and, and there's a special way that you put in your application for that. And then you find out whether you've been accepted or, or not accepted into it. And you have classes, but really it's mainly learning to do the work. So, for instance, uh, in, when we get in there, uh, we're partnered up with another, uh, with another student attorney. So most of the time it's, it's two people taking a case. Um, my experience, like I said, was with an asylum case. So um, we would meet with our client. I probably did like the second week of the, of the class, of the second week of the, of the course. We have a supervising attorney uh, because we are gonna be taking the cases and we're gonna be the advocates, but obviously we're not licensed. We're the student attorneys. So we're under the umbrella and under the, the guidance of the, of the supervising attorney. Which is really, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's necessary, obviously it's necessary. You learn quite a bit. I mean, you have to, and the learning curve is very fast. Um, and there's a lot going on. So it's a wonderful experience, but you better be prepared to work and probably work more than you've worked in a long time. And that's the thing that I think that's, that's very important uh, in the clinic is that you are finally putting theory to practice. You're learning and you're having to look at people and hear their stories and realize that you're advocating for them. And in many ways, they've trusted you to, um, with their life. What we're seeing is a lot of domestic violence, uh, gang issues, mostly uh, coming from all from the Northern Triangle with Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, Honduras. Uh, and so you have women and bringing their children uh, to flee all of the violence that is going on over there. I guess what, what one of the things that, I, that I've taken away from this and I, I knew it before, but it's different when you work um, on cases and these aren't things you, you're just reading about. You're dealing with real people. You're dealing with people. You're dealing with a mother. You're dealing with a 13-year-old you know, child, 14-year-old child, 10-year-old child. Um, and you hear the stories and what they've gone through. And I don't think people understand. And it's very frustrating sometimes when you uh, hear things that are said in the media, the absolute 
for instance, I mean, just to, to quote, like in, in asylum law, it has to, quote, rise to the level of persecution, right? Uh, and you, you talk and you hear these, these stories and you understand the details of what um, some of these people have been through. Horrific. A lot of these women and, and these children have gone through every kind of imaginable horror from domestic violence, horrific domestic violence, constant, you know, decades worth of, of domestic violence of the worst things that can be done to a human being have been done to them. You just want, they, they deserve to win. They deserve to, to be here. It's that feeling of, of coming away and saying, I'm going to do everything I can to fight for, for these individuals. And it doesn't matter. And and it was, I mean, it was it was really my first time taking, obviously taking a case. We had our, our supervising attorney, uh, but we did a lot of the, the legwork. And it's a lot of work. That's the other thing I hear, I think, that people don't understand about asylum, uh, asylum cases. And again, already you hear um, out in media misinforming people, talking about things like the asylum loophole. There's no asylum loophole. That's ridiculous. It's an extremely narrow uh, avenue to kind of try to go through, and people are trying to make it even more narrow. And so in working this case, uh, and working and, and being exposed to, to the, what's going on, uh, the stakes are extremely high, you know? They're about as high as they get. Um, if you don't win, and they're not able to, get to, to be granted asylum, there's a very real possibility that your client is gonna be sent back to their country and killed and that's that's a that's those are that's about as high as the stakes get so in the midst of all this seeking medical help with her leg applying for asylum adjusting to a new life learning a new language, Rosa is confronted with terrible news. I had just gotten out of surgery when I received the news that my son had died. was one of the saddest things in my life because I knew my son had relapsed and I knew that there was a possibility he will lose his life very soon. The day before he died, we spoke and he told me, don't worry about me, mommy. I am fine. Worry about my sister and my brother. I asked him again if he felt fine and he said that he was, that he was craving fish and he wanted to go buy some in the port. That was his last wish. I told him I would call him in the next day at the same time, 1 p.m. And he told me again to not worry about him. When I asked him if he was feeling any pain or any discomfort, he said that he was fine. The next day, I called at the time that I said I would, but I had an incoming call from my family telling me that he had already passed away. That was a really hard day for me because when one can walk or one has the ability to move freely and gets that kind of news, one can run or yell or something, but, but I could not do that. I was immobilized, I was on a wheelchair just pulling out my hair. 
I even felt like I couldn't cry properly. I don't know. It was it was something unexplainable that, that overcame me. The day after I received the news my son Carlos had died, I thought to myself, okay, Carlos is no longer with us, but I still have two other children to look after, and I will fight for them too. I had my first hearing in 2008 and my last one in 2011. Uh, you know, in the U.S., um, we have divided the country up into basically 12 circuits. This is Manoj, and he's a human rights lawyer and the director of family detention services at RACES. So there's 11 circuits, and then the D.C. circuit is its own, its own kind of geographic thing and um, each circuit can basically make its own law. So like Congress writes the law, the president signs it into law, and then this is what the law says. But it's really up to the judges and the courts to interpret the law. So, you know, it says an asylum seeker has to show that they were targeted on account of their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, but it doesn't define what nationality means, or it doesn't define what is a religion, or what is a particular social group. So that really comes down to like the courts. And so the court says, well, this one person who claims to be practicing this religion, but knows no one else in the planet that also practices this religion, like, is that actually a religion or not? Like, it, it comes down to the courts to sort of fill in that blank. Um, and so each, each of these 11 different circuits sort of has a lot of leeway to create its own interpretations. You know, some courts are more conservative than others. Some courts are more liberal than others. So the exact same case with the exact same facts moving forward in Oklahoma versus Atlanta versus Seattle is likely to have a different outcome in each of those places because there's a different judge and it's a different circuit. So in Texas, we are bound by Fifth Circuit law. In California, you're bound by Ninth Circuit law. In Atlanta, you're bound by 11th Circuit law. Um, obviously, if you don't like what the circuit court says, you can go to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court takes very few cases. And so, like, my understanding is, you know, in Atlanta, for example, like 97% of asylum cases are denied by the Atlanta court. Whereas the percentage that is denied is much lower in San Francisco or Los Angeles. But that case was practically lost. I basically lost my asylum case. Wait, what? 
So if we look at these numbers, the rate of denial in San Antonio, Texas, it's at 71%. In Dallas, it's at 81%. And in El Paso, it's at 93%. In other cities like Los Angeles, uh, asylum seekers get denied at 68%. In San Francisco, if you apply for asylum, you're denied 32% of the time. In New York, the case is 17% of asylum denials. In Charlotte, North Carolina, that number, 82%. And the national average of asylum seekers being denied asylum in the US is at over 52%, meaning that more than half of the people that apply for asylum get denied. So it makes perfect sense then that Rosa's case would be denied. It fits with these statistics that asylum is rarely granted in certain areas of the country. That's one of the reasons my attorney tried to get me deferred action, because when I failed to win my asylum case, they were very clear with me and told me that I should not stay in the country. The immigration judge who heard my asylum case told me that if she granted me asylum, the U.S. would have to give asylum to everyone, because everyone came here for the same reason. She also told me that she didn't understand why we come to seek refuge here when there are also gangs in this country. I think it's because of ICE that I was able to remain in the country. We turned in letters of support from my friends and my community that ICE had requested. And all of them were signed. It was all people that personally knew me. I have those letters here somewhere. My attorney told me that we would be asking for deferred action to let me stay in the country and that those letters of support would be turned in for that petition. That's how ICE let me stay in the country for two more years. Raices has had her case, has worked on, or has represented Rosario since 2009 or 2010. I could be wrong on that. Um, I took over the case in 2014. So, um, I, but what I know is that, you know, she applied for asylum before the immigration court in San Antonio and she was denied asylum. And so she appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is sort of like the appeals court within the immigration system. So the immigration court and the Board of Immigration Appeals are completely different from like normal courts in the United States. Um, they're not run by like the United States District Court system. They're actually within the Department of Justice. Um, so, you know, to get really lawyer on you, um, a normal court, like the, a criminal court or a district court or something like that is an article three court and immigration courts are article one courts. So like 
if you're looking at the Constitution, Article I sets up the executive branch, so it sets up the president, cabinet, etc. Article II sets up the legislative branch, which is Congress and the Senate. And Article III sets up the judicial branch, so Supreme Court, appeals courts, district courts. So immigration courts do not fall where you think they would fall, which is Article III, the judicial branch. They fall within the executive branch. So the president controls the immigration courts. It's not the Supreme Court, necessarily. So that gives the president, and by default, the Department of Justice, um, sort of a lot of leeway with what they can do within the immigration court system. So they're not actually independent courts, crazy enough. Rosario appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals, and she was denied at the Board of Immigration Appeals. So once you're denied at the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is also within the Department of Justice, then the law lets you do further appeals, but you get to move out of the executive branch, so out of the president's you know, sort of control, and you get to move into the Article III courts, which are part of the judicial branch. So you get to appeal to a federal appeals court. So after the BIA denied her case, then she filed an appeal with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is the court that controls Texas. Um, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is actually based in New Orleans. So there her case was pending, and the government, uh, actually the Department of Justice Office of Immigration Litigation, so OIL, um, when, when you're before the Immigration Court and the Board of Immigration Appeals, the, like, our opponent is ICE. But when you're at the Fifth Circuit or the Supreme Court, our, appoint, our opponent is OIL. Um, so when her case was pending in the Fifth Circuit, um, OIL contacted us and said, that they would be willing to exercise prosecutorial discretion, or actually their client, which was the Department of Homeland Security, would be willing to exercise prosecutorial discretion by remanding her case, so basically sending it back down the chain to the Board of Immigration Appeals, where it would be administratively closed. Um, so we agreed to that. So her case got sent back to the Department of Justice, to the Board of Immigration Appeals, where it was administratively closed. So administrative closure is a type of prosecutorial discretion, and it basically means that her case is open and pending, but like sitting on a shelf somewhere and no one is ever going to look at it again until either us or ICE files something with the court, with the Board of Immigration Appeals, asking them to do something in the case. So it does not give her any immigration status. It does not mean she has asylum. It does not mean she can stay forever in the United States. All it means is she does not have to leave right now and 
that she does not have a deportation order. So that's what we agreed to. And really what we were at that point when we were in the Fifth Circuit, uh, obviously you want to win and you want to get your client um, the ability to stay here permanently. But, you know, often your client's goal is, I don't want to go home. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. In the next episode, we will discover Rosa's fate within the U.S. immigration system. This episode was produced by me, Marco Galaviz Luna, and Ana Karen Ortiz Varela, with research assistance by Raquel Aguirre. Thank you to Carlos Hernandez and Erica Schammer from the St. Mary's School of Law.